0: The most important thing is to listen, because actually people are telling you all the time what the next question is.
1: I loved it when you really put him on the spot there and said, I'm the interviewer, I'm asking the questions.
0: I had the executive producer screaming in my ear saying, be nicer, be nicer, he's gonna hang up. All right, let's, let's pass
2: over that question. It is a
0: silly question. You've gotta know what your next two steps are. It's like playing chess. You need to predict where they're going to take things. Hi there, I'm Hamish McDonald. I'm a radio and television journalist. Sometimes I host Breakfast on Australia's Radio National on ABC. I host a TV program called The Sunday Project as well. I've been a host on Al Jazeera and I've worked for ABC America, Channel 4 in the UK. been all over the place. Today, I'm going to give you a masterclass on the art of the interview.
1: Hello and welcome to the masterclass. I'm Louisa Lim and I teach journalism at the University of Melbourne. Every week we're going to have a Master of Audio Journalism talking through one aspect of the craft. This week we're talking the art of the interview with Hamish MacDonald, who's honed his interviewing skills over the years on a variety of television and radio. Hamish... Be honest, when you're hosting a breakfast show and you're doing so many interviews, how much preparation do you do?
0: Lots, lots and lots of prep. Uh, so the briefs for the next day come through from about four o'clock in the afternoon. And there's generally about a 10 to 15 page brief for each interview. So when I'm hosting Radio National Breakfast on ABC Australia, it's a bit like the Today program in the UK, a similar format, but it's only one host. So you have probably up to about 10 live interviews a morning, some days. And I'll probably spend most of the early evening reading through all the briefing notes. I think, though, it gets easier as you go along because a lot of the issues, you read the briefing once and next time you come back to that story, you don't need to start from scratch.
1: But for those people starting out, you know, you're facing your first big interview, what should you do to prepare
0: Your ambition, I think, should always be to try and know as much about or more than the person that you're interviewing on that topic. I mean, you're probably never going to achieve that, but you want to be able to to match them and have a conversation. You need to be able to feel confident that if you take away your notes, your written questions, if you take away anything you can see on a screen, that you can sit and have a conversation with them and go toe to toe on the topic at hand.
1: When you go in, do you know what you're aiming for? What kind of news line you're aiming to get out of it? Tell us how you approach an interview.
0: I don't think I go in knowing what news line I want to get. I'm not sure that produces the best kind of interview. But I need to go in knowing the territory upon which they're weakest. That's what you've got to identify during your briefing and preparation process. Identify the fault lines in their argument. Identify the gaps in their argument. It's like when you read a newspaper article or a book or some factual account and you get little questions in your head and you think that doesn't make sense. If you get that little bell ring in the back of your head that's broadly the territory you know you need to be in during the interview because if this person's argument isn't stacking up or if there's a gap in what they're saying or if they haven't quite articulated their position fully you know that's because that's the bit they're undecided on or that's the bit that they don't have the policy resolved on and that's where you have to go. In the interview, you know, if they've got a line that feels a bit flimsy about when their policy will be delivered or how much it's going to cost, you know, that's where you need to go because that's where the story is.
1: I think we have a really great example of that from quite recently. This is an example from, I think, January 2018, when you were talking to Michael Wolff, the author of Fire and Fury Inside the Trump White House on ABC Breakfast. And this is the very start of that interview.
0: How much of this book is fact and how much of it is rumour and innuendo? That's a, a silly question. I,
2: it's, of course, it's all factual. Why would I have written this book otherwise? Um, uh, this is a nonfiction book. Being, uh, anyway, let's, let's pass over that question. It is a silly question.
0: We've just heard the President of the United States alleging that it's untrue, it's, okay, that it libel is, laws yes, need to be changed. It is, it's a is, relevant this question. Is,
2: this is Donald Trump who is saying this. The man... the uh, Truly a man without credibility.
0: And so, therefore, we should just believe your account of things?
2: You should read my book and see if you believe my account.
0: Yes. I suppose as I've been reading this book, I have in the back of my mind not just the denials from Donald Trump and Steve Bannon and whoever else, but Tony Blair and Tom Barak and Anna Wintour. When these people come up in the book, I'm obviously questioning the veracity.
2: Do you... Well, Um, first first of all, Steve Bannon didn't question the veracity of the book. He didn't deny anything that he said there. We obviously have a situation on other people where they're caught, they're caught in the headlights. I said, they said this, this will be very damaging to their uh, to their relationship with Donald Trump and to their reputation.
1: Um, you went in really strong. How important do you think that first question is?
0: The first question is really important because it sets the tone for the whole interview. Sometimes you don't want to go in hard and fast. Sometimes you do need to step in more gently, but... You know in Michael Wolfe, you've got someone that is going to give you a robust interview no matter what. We all knew about Fire and Fury because it had been creating news headlines for a week. This was his first Australian interview. Everybody knew that the president was denying a lot of what was in the book. All these other names had also denied quotations and components of the book. The question was, is the book true? I mean, that's what everyone wanted to know. So I suppose in preparing for that interview, what I was thinking about was, what does my audience want to know about this? What are they thinking about this book? Do they want me to get this author on and just get him to sort of walk us through an audio version of where his book goes? I don't really think so. If you want to read it, you can download it. You know, this guy's doing publicity for his book. This is not a free kick let's test the proposition. How much of the book is true and how much of it is rumour and innuendo? I think that's the only question you could start with.
1: And the answer is quite telling, isn't it?
0: Absolutely. I mean, you just heard the hackles go up straight away. And look, it produced a line, it produced headlines, it made news in Australia and around the world immediately because he was so sensitive about it. But ultimately that was where the conversation was at. And in reading both the book and also the briefing notes that I had for this interview, it was obvious that that's where the fault line was.
1: So tell me then, how do you develop the interview? I mean, do you go in with a list of questions?
0: I do go in with a list of questions. At Radio National, there's a lot of scripting and preparation. So you'll always have full interview written for you but I think the most important thing is to go in knowing that you may abandon that and probably will and that there will be departure points you just need to have the bones there of an interview but the most important thing is to listen listen to what they're saying I mean I had that first question in my head that wasn't the written question and I had Two questions in, I had the executive producer screaming in my ear saying, be nicer, be nicer, he's going to hang up. But I was listening to what he was saying because I needed to come back on those things. He was kind of saying, this is inappropriate questioning. So you've got to be ready to defend that. I mean, none of that was written on a page. None of that was my interview prep. That was the stuff that I had in my head because of the reading and preparation that I'd done when you ask that first question, you've got to have a fair idea of where they're going to go in their answer. And you've got to know what your next two steps are. It's like playing chess. You need to predict where they're going to take things and be ready to meet them there and already have your pieces in place for when they take you there.
1: You are a tough interviewer. And I think that's part of the pleasure of listening to you on ABC Breakfast is listening to government ministers squirm and it is notoriously difficult to get any kind of newsline out of government ministers let's listen to another example this is from 2016 when you're talking to christopher pine who's an australian government minister he was leader of the house then and he'd called for sam dastiari the labor politician to be sacked for taking chinese donations and you were really pressing him about exactly what sam dastiari had done that was against the rules on the per,
0: so difference. on the personal debt, what is the rule that's been broken?
2: Well, it's a, it's a, it's a question of
0: ethics, Hamish. I no, mean, but no, well, hey, so is there a rule that's been broken?
2: Hamish, do you think it's reasonable for someone to have their personal debts yeah. paid, uh, uh, and and therefore?
0: I'm the, the, the interviewer. <laughs> you're answering the questions. Has Hamish, a rule been broken?
2: Hamish, the question is.
0: No, no, no! I've told you what the question is. Your turn to answer.
2: Certainly the, the ethical rule of being compromised by Chinese business interests has definitely been broken.
0: OK, but I, I think we did hear it quite clearly there, no actual rule other than your view of an ethical Well, I'll, rule. Let,
1: I'll let the legal ethicist
2: uh, come forward and explain what Fine. the rules are.
1: I loved it when you really put him on the spot there and said, I'm the interviewer, I'm asking the questions. But it's quite a different journalistic culture, for example, than the States where that might be judged as not deferential enough. Do you change your approach depending on where you are or how do you decide how to approach these things?
0: I suppose it's something that I have thought about throughout my career and I don't think I'm ever quite settled on because it it does upset some people. You know, even in Australia, where we're not that deferential to politicians, people get very upset at times at the way I take on politicians. My dad gets upset uh, if he thinks I'm being too aggressive towards a conservative politician. I mean, he doesn't mind if I'm being aggressive to a left-wing politician. I get emails saying, oh, that was fantastic. Um, and I think also the culture and discourse around the media is changing at the moment. There's so much free-flowing debate about media bias and fake news that I think now people just assume that if you're taking on a politician, no matter where they sit on the spectrum, it's because you sit against them individually, there's not really a recognition that there are journalists still today who just really believe in, in holding people in power to account that's where I come from on this. I believe that, yes, there's obviously a space for opinion-driven journalism. You know, that's obviously very popular, and we see that here, we see it in the United States, we see it in the UK. But I also really strongly believe, and maybe that's from the places that I've worked in, that there is still a space for journalists who are just interested in the pursuit of journalism and fact-finding, and holding people in power to account. And I think whether they're in government or in opposition, our role, particularly on a program like Breakfast, is to ask them those tough questions and when they don't answer them, bring them back around and keep them focused on that. Do I change how I do it from place to place? I went and worked for an American network for a few years for ABC America, and it was during the lead up to Trump's election. I was also living in America during that election campaign. I was doing a fellowship at Harvard. And I think something really shocked me about American journalism. There is amazing journalism in America. It's some of the finest journalism in the world. But I think broadcast journalism in America really lacks a robustness in its intersection with the people in power. And it is because of that deference towards politicians and particularly like the office of governor or the office of the president. And so there's a reluctance to really tackle them. And I found that actually frightening. You know, as was there through all of the primaries. And so that deference that is offered to the president is also offered to people that are running for the presidency. And you just saw it time and time again, whether it was interviews with Hillary or Trump or any of the others, I just found it shocking, really shocking. Most of my journalistic life has been in Australia and the UK. Certainly the UK, there's a very robust approach to interviewing politicians. I was dismayed. I was actually upset. And all I could think of was how different would this election process be if these candidates were actually being held to account and tested on their policy positions? That was what was shocking. I mean, you just heard endless questions about emails and tapes talking about you know pussy grabbing and whatever and of course that stuff needed to be asked about but what about the policy stuff? It was just absent.
1: Right in this particular interview you asked the same question six times tell us about that interview in the moment did you go in knowing that you would come back and back and back six times?
0: No it's it's never a plan I don't think it should ever be a plan But I think you should always operate on the principle that if you're asking a reasonable question, your audience should be able to get a direct answer to it. And if, if you're not getting there, you've got to push. And yes, some people will be upset, but ultimately, I think you're doing the audience a disservice if you let these politicians get away with just talking points. I mean the talking point culture in Australia is really strong amongst our politicians. I think it's stronger than it is in the UK. I think in the UK politicians are more willing to enter into a sort of robust conversation about the ideas around a policy or a position here. They just spout the same talking points and you could get three different politicians on from the same party and they'll, they'll all spout the same talking points. So I feel that if I'm going to be of any use to the audience, I should try and break through those talking points when I notice them and get a real answer.
1: Let's talk about other kinds of interviews, because you also do a lot of quite tricky interviews with just ordinary people, vulnerable people who are often experiencing great trauma in the midst of some horrendous situation. And one of the examples that really sticks in my mind was an interview you did with a obstetrician in aleppo in syria it was a live interview that was on radio national on the abc breakfast show i think in 2016 let's just listen to a clip from it
0: aleppo has been described as hell on earth how do you see
3: hell it's really hell you can't imagine it's really hell when I go, when I see all the destroyed buildings, when I see the babies, the, the children are dying or with uh, broken hands or with broken legs or with who has uh, lost uh, their limbs, I, I can't tell you, it's very, uh, it's very hard. Who can do this? The, the, the one who does this is, is not a human, he's monster. But you can' imagine a little baby I know a little girl five years old. she's uh, the daughter of my uh, friend. She lost her legs. She can't go, she can't walk, she can't play.
0: Do you have children yeah, of your I own?
3: Have, I have a daughter. I have a daughter eight years old. How is she? She wants to play, she just wants to play, but she she finds nothing to play with. She can't go to swings, she can't go to school, she can't go out. Always, when she wants to go out, the, I'll tell her, I, uh, I'll uh, I read on the internet there is an airplane in the sky. So I tell her, go home, go and stay at home. So, so she will cry. I want to play, I want to go out. Like everyone, every child. And now there is this, the new siege, it's, it makes it worse. So she wants to eat an apple. She wants to eat a banana. There is no apple, no banana, no meat, nothing, no no, no milk. You can imagine a baby or a little child wants to drink milk,
1: but there is no milk. This was a really transfixing interview, and there was one reason was all the bombs and the ordnance in the background, but the other was that personal angle. It's hard for us to imagine what it's like to be in a war-torn area, but to look after a small child who wants to go out and play and wants to drink milk and eat apples is so much easier for us to kind of imagine Were you looking for that personal thing or did you know about it?
0: Uh, I don't know that I went in planning to ask about that. As I'm listening back to that now, it's a very remote place for an Australian audience to even understand what Aleppo or part of Aleppo under siege might be like. So let's just understand the basics because... You can get any analyst to come on and talk about the geopolitics or the Assad regime or you know the international coalition i mean that's what we get day in day out we had someone there living through it what is it that they can bring to give our audience a different understanding of this story and it's that basic day-to-day stuff i think just basically as a foreign correspondent that was the thing that always i found hard was that There's such a desire for the storytelling of conflicts to be about the bombs and the bang-bang. But the reality is this kind of grinding attempt at normalcy that the people who live there struggle for each day. I've spent lots of time in Afghanistan over the last decade or so. And when I think about it, I don't think about the firefights that I witnessed or the suicide bombings or anything like that. I think about the women going out to buy bread in the neighbourhood where I lived. I think about the kids on the hilltop flying kites when I would go up there in the afternoon or I would think about my morning jogs up the hill and the people I would come across and the people just trying to eke out an existence in those places that are war-torn. And for me anyway, I think you learn so much more about what those conflicts mean when you start to understand that stuff that a kid goes out to fly a kite in an afternoon in Afghanistan while bombs are going off. And in Aleppo, a mother who is an obstetrician at a hospital where people are coming in with limbs blown off, who could die at any moment, is worried about the fact that her daughter wants a banana and milk.
1: So how do you go about those interviews when you're interviewing people, sort of vulnerable people who've undergone traumatic experiences? And I guess what you're getting at is how does it feel? But you can't ask that, right? I mean, that's really corny and also it won't get the kind of response you need. So how do you go about kind of eliciting those kind of responses?
0: I think you just keep it normal. You know, you just think if I I were meeting this person, what would I ask them? How are you? What are you doing today? What did you have for breakfast? How are you getting food? Follow your own curiosity, but you keep it normal. I mean, just pretend you're not on radio. Like the great thing about radio (laughs) is it's intimacy. You know, you're in people's bedrooms when they wake up in the morning or you're in their car with them as they're driving to work or they might even be today in their headphones. In a sense, you just wanna make that conversation as intimate and normal as can be. Like if if someone was in your living room and you knew they just had this traumatic experience, you know, you wouldn't be asking them, how do you feel? Could you tell me about what you think about the president and his war crimes? You'd be asking them, okay, are you all right? Have you had any food? Can I get you a glass of water? When was the last time you had something to eat? Where is your daughter? How is your daughter? I think all of those questions are the natural things that you would ask that person if you met them and you weren't on radio. The questions there are minimal. You probably notice. Very basic questions. All we want to do is hear this woman's story. You're just throwing little balls in the air for her to catch and take them where she she wants. And I think that's what, what we did.
1: And I think another example of that kind of questioning is you did an interview series for Channel 10 called The Truth Is, where you did an interview with a Marine who had killed people in combat and you were talking about the feeling, the sensation of killing. And, I mean, I wondered for that because this is not live, this is pre-recorded. Tell me a bit about how you went about doing that. How much you pre-interview or do you just wait till you're rolling or how do you go about an interview like that?
0: Definitely I wouldn't pre-interview. Producers and researchers would in that they spend a lot of time finding those characters. You know, you're building a half-hour TV program around them so a lot of work goes into finding and selecting the right characters for those. So I would have had extensive briefing notes on them on their background from the production team that I would have prepped myself on before the shoot. But yeah, I would absolutely avoid talking to them about any of that stuff until we were in the interview, because you often lose the best stuff by having those conversations first up and you never want to get halfway through an interview and you know someone's about to tell you something brilliant and they say, well, you know, I told you about that before. Or as I told you before, anyway, now I'm really screwed up. You want to save all of that conversation. And the most important thing is to listen because actually people are telling you all the time what the next question is. So yes, prepare yourself. Yes, know broadly where you want to go. For a half hour TV program, around the central character you might interview them 10 or 15 times in the course of a couple of weeks and you'll know right this is the this is the day when we're going to sit down and we're going to have a a more meaningful conversation about what it feels like to kill we know that that's what this scene is about so you know that's the territory you need to be in but in order to get their story you actually need to listen to them and they will always tell you somehow what the next question should be and I think that was the case in in that in that episode. Let's listen. Tell me about the first time that you knew that you'd killed someone.
4: You do it ten million times in training. It's just another it's just another part of the just another part of the job. Like it's not a it's not something you stop and reflect on. You have too many things to do. You don't have this like you think it's gonna be like this huge like Oh, man, I just did this or I did that. Like, there's too many things going on.
0: You think... It, you, you expect it'll be something momentous?
4: Momentous is a great word for it. Anticlimactic is the best word to describe how it actually is. You're just like, oh, that's it. OK, well, on to the next task. All that other stuff, you know, you can think about that when you get home to Georgia or wherever and you're back in your apartment and you can chill out. Then go ahead and reflect on all that. You can block that out for months without even thinking about it. And that's how it is.
0: Do you think about it now?
4: <laughs> I'm not gonna sit here and tell you that I feel bad about the stuff that we did. Hmm. I don't. Like, those folks were bad, and we did bad things to them.
0: You don't regret exposing yourself to all the bad stuff?
4: What bad stuff? I mean, what do you mean? Like the fighting? Yeah. Those guys were Hamish, they're bad guys. They'd be killing Aussies if they weren't killing Americans.
0: I know, but I'm asking from a personal point of view. They're bad guys. They need to go
4: down. Some people just need to be shot.
1: So you didn't know he was going to say
0: that? No. And my memory from that time was that I was quite shocked at some of the things he said. And I think I really... As a result of that, took my time to think about what I wanted to ask next. And sometimes leaving those spaces is really important.
1: And you don't hear that shock in your response. You sound very measured.
0: I think you don't want to unsettle someone unnecessarily. This is about them. It's not about my reaction to it. So you want to remain sure-footed. But I think... If you listen to the end of each of his responses there, he was kind of pointing to me what the next question should be. We did bad things to them, but they were bad guys. It's quite an amazing thing for someone to say. You know, he had hundreds of kills under his belt from the war in Iraq. And these were very frank admissions. So it was very conversational. But again, he's someone that, although he's talking about killing, has experienced his own traumas himself. He's got very bad PTSD. You always have a responsibility to the people that you're interviewing, even though you might be pretty robust with a politician or whatever. If you're talking to an individual who's experiencing trauma, you have to be sensitive to that. And it's not really appropriate in an environment like that to come in over the top and say, so what, you're a proud killer? And that kind of thing. That's not the tone of... An interview like that, certainly not when someone has acute PTSD.
1: Now, you said that you never, you know, in a situation like this, you'd never pre-interview, but people, you know, there were producers that do that. But what about when you're out in the field by yourself? There's that real tension between, you know, doing your research and knowing what someone's going to say and getting really amazing tape. How do you do that? Um, What's your approach?
0: Yeah, I just try and keep rolling as much as possible. I think when you're a foreign correspondent, you become pretty instinctive about things and you know that you'll get a lot of stuff that never makes the cut. But I think you go in and give it your best shot. Sometimes something clearly isn't going to work, so you pull out of that pretty quickly
1: if you're out in the field and you're trying to set up interviews and you want to know whether someone's going to be good you have Mm. to pre-interview them but then if you pre-interview them too much you get this problem where they they're just not fresh on tape so how do you
0: how do I juggle that how do you juggle that Uh, more often than not I think I would just do the interview I'd get a very basic sense of can they talk have they got something to say I think I'd be more inclined just to just to do it knock it over see what we get i think um you can always go and do another interview
1: what's the hardest interview you've ever done
0: oh that's a tough question i host now a program called the project which is a kind of news comedy type format it's like a nightly live program and we talk to politicians and all of that kind of thing but there's also celebrities that come through the program a lot i often find that quite difficult because there's a lot more parameters around those interviews and sometimes they're quite hard to get good stuff out of. Particularly comedians can be quite hard. Like even <laughs> comedians that I love and think are really funny in an interview sense might be quite tricky.
1: You're ruining the magic.
0: Yeah, probably. There's a politician in Australia called Matthias Corman, who's the finance minister, who is a very effective minister, he's really hard to interview because he just sticks to the talking points and it's so hard to get him off them. And I've I, I sort of become quite fond of him because he keeps agreeing <laughs> to do interviews with me and I feel like it gets more and more fractious each time. <laughs> so he's difficult To be honest, I think the ones that are most difficult are the ones that just end up being boring. You know, like there's some world leaders, sometimes you interview them and they have these great records or these very interesting stories to tell, but then they're just boring, they're boring interviews.
1: Everybody has that moment when you're just stuck in the middle of an interview that isn't going anywhere and you're just kind of bogged down and you don't know where to go next. What do you do in that moment?
0: I think you can disrupt. I think there's always the capacity to disrupt. If it's getting bogged down and it's just dull, you can always just change tack. Ask a funny question, Ask, say something silly, or just pause, get them a glass of water or, or a coffee and just insert some disruption in there. You just need to loosen them up somehow. I think that can be a good tactic if it's not really going very well. But another way to disrupt is to go in a bit harder. like. I think Michael Wolff is a good example. I think if I'd have gone in really gently and friendly, it would have been an okay interview because it was an interesting story, but I don't think it would have been anything amazing. But I think the way we went in got a much better outcome. I get in trouble sometimes <laughs> from producers because they think I'm too robust or agitative.
1: But it does make for good listening. Well, it really does. And, I mean, that's what you want as an audience. So, I'm going to ask you to sum up two top tips, the most important two things when you're interviewing
0: people. Listen. Like, I just cannot stress that <laughs> strongly enough. Listen to what they're saying and be prepared for the next steps. Always try and be a few steps ahead.
1: And I think before you go, I think you have a task for our listeners.
0: Prepare an interview. It has to be somebody that has some authority or responsibility so that you can make it a bit antagonistic. So choose a politician, someone with some power. It could be Michael Wolf who's got some questions to answer, a minister of the government. Prepare the interview, but in your preparation, for each question that you write, you need to also write, based on research, what you think their answer is going to be and then what your follow-up would be. So we've been talking a lot about trying to stay a few steps ahead. I want you to think that out logically as part of this exercise. So your first question might be, Minister, do you accept that carbon emissions went up in Australia last year? Overall carbon emissions went up in Australia last year. Find what the minister has said on that and include that as what you expect his response will be. And then you need to prep what your follow-up question to that would be. So what are you going to come back with? How do you counter whatever that line is that you think they're going, to, they're going to pull?
1: Great exercise. Thank you so much, Hamish, for your time today. Thank you
0: for having me, Louise. It's been great to chat.
1: The Masterclass is produced and edited by Buffy Gorilla and Ruby Schwartz. It's recorded in the Hallwood Recording Studio by Gavin Neighbour. The original concept is by Anders Furs. Our theme tune is by Susie Wilkins. And it's brought to you by the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne. I'm Louisa Lim. Thanks for listening.